scripture reading today comes from Psalm chapter 23. It's a Psalm of David, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before my enemies, or in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Psalm 23 is a song that gives us a way to view God as he is supposed to be viewed, an objective way of viewing God. And it goes against our modern perceptions of God because whether you're religious or irreligious, both religious and irreligious people view God as either not involved, at least functionally, not involved or absent. David says, you are a shepherd. Or they both functionally operate as if God is not in control. David in verse 1 says, you are Lord. Or they both can view God either as, on the one hand, vindictive, or on the other hand, completely out of touch, you know, outdated. And David says, you lead me, you restore me, you guide me, you are with me. Psalm 23 blows away all of our postmodern agnostic views of God, powerless and vindictive, disconnected. David, who is the author He's reflecting on his own life, and he's saying that there is this insurance in knowing that God, that he himself is with you, even in your darkest moments. Somebody who's vindictive cannot do that. Somebody who's uninvolved cannot do that. Somebody who's powerless, it wouldn't matter, but David says it absolutely matters. It shaped and changed his life. And he gets very, very personal, almost emotional, which is why it's a song. He gets so personal that he turns from singing about God in verses 1 to 3 to singing and praising and praying to God in verses 4 and 5. He's reflecting on his relationship with God and bursts into song. That's what's happening here. His relationship with God is a living reality that gives him poise, that gives him comfort, that, that gives him, uh, renews his self-esteem in a sense. It gives him power. How can your relationship with God be a living reality in your life that actually shapes and powers the way you view yourself and the way you handle the pressures and challenges of the world? There are three things we can see here. One, we have to recognize and trust that Christ is our victory. Two, because we're in him, because we have victory in him, he gives us honor. And three, he gives us intimacy. Victory, honor, intimacy. Those are the three things that we learn. And when you have that, when that becomes at the root and the core of what shapes your heart and soul, you yourself will burst into song and you'll be able to handle the great pressures and darknesses in your lives. First, we're going to look at victory. Verse five, the author says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, Hebrew poetry, it's not, it doesn't rhyme but I want to give you a very quick lesson on interpreting Hebrew poetry. It's written in a way, in a very special cadence, such that each line is followed by a line that's usually indented. It's usually followed by a line that's indented that clarifies the line before it through a series of parallelism or unique word pairs or, um, or syntax throughout the entire poem to, to express the author's point. 
And the author's main point here is the Lord is the shepherd. The Lord guides him, even though, even if he's in the valley, even if he's in great darkness, the deepest darkness, almost like he's crawling on the ground and feeling like he's going to die when he's in that kind of danger, even though God guides him, God leads him. There's a comfort in the presence of God through every danger, through every darkness, through the shadow of death. Now, what is the promise here? God is not just walking with David. He's not just walking with his people. He fights for his people. We see this here because the word table in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The word table here refers to a feast, a meal, an elaborate meal that's been set up when? Before he walks into the valley so he can just kick him off and leave him alone? After the valley, after, the, after he kind of makes it through and he gets out? Is it a big test? No. Here, the table's prepared in the presence of his enemies. Whenever you see that, a table being prepared in the presence of your enemies, you assume that your enemies have been thwarted. They've been bound up. They have been put asunder. That's victory. That's what that means. Because think about this. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of danger, in the midst of death, we oftentimes, the greatest darknesses that we suffer, we generally suffer them alone. And so we have every reason to fear if you believe indeed that you are alone In fact, you would never feast in a situation like that. Any time that you have faced danger or pressure or something that you can't eat, you can't even sleep. But David says that no matter the darkness, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've you've done, no matter what you're going through, God is present with you. And what he's saying is, I'm not going to let anything ruin you. I'm not going to let anything, no matter, you, you may feel like you're being torn apart. I will not let this completely destroy you. And so he prepares this victory feast to celebrate victory, triumph in the face of his enemies, in the face of our enemies. What does that mean? One, you know, we're afraid of every uncertainty, we do whatever we can to avoid suffering. We do whatever we can to avoid hardship. We do, we're, we're afraid of the battle but not Jesus. On one hand, Jesus suffers. And you never hear him saying in the midst of suffering, oh, this is good. This is good. This is is a good thing. The cross shows us that evil is real. The cross shows us that evil exists. The cross shows us that suffering, either as a result of our own personal evil or it's the result of evil in general, and it's bad. But on the other hand, what is the gospel? That God could take the worst things that happen in your life and bring about the greatest thing. That God could take the most helpless situation in your life and bring about ultimate power. That God could take the, most, the, the deepest suffering and darkness in your life and bring about healing through it. That God could take the greatest scars and wounds, losses in your life, and bring about victory. That's what the cross shows us. The cross represents God is working through ultimate darkness and danger and death to bring about ultimate salvation, and that salvation, resurrection, is victory. And so the greatest suffering that we see on the cross, the scars, the mockery, the cross, leads us to the feast. 
the ultimate feast, the victory feast. That's the end of darkness. That's the end of danger once and for all. That's the end of death once and for all. It's the end of sin once and for all. It's the end of evil once and for all. And so the shepherd, God, is in your struggle and in your pain. And he's saying, yes, I understand. I understand that you suffered a lot. It's been hard. And that you have a lot of reasons to be afraid. I've been through it, he says. I've been through it myself. But take heart. I am doing something so powerful through your sin and through your brokenness and through your suffering to bring about something that you will celebrate for all eternity. That's what he says. Because if God is at work through Jesus' brokenness to bring about the greatest salvation and victory and redemption, then he can use your suffering to bring about redemption and, and vindication for others. It's a promise. David is singing because he trusts. He's experienced it. He trusts. Oh, he's been in the valley. He's fought giants. He's faced death. Oh, he's been in the valley. He has sinned greatly. And he's been redeemed and restored. And so he's bursting into song in the promise of this victory. What is victory? Victory means safety. Victory means freedom. When you're ruled by a tyrant, when your enemy has taken over, when your enemy is about to pounce, you are afraid. You will never experience the safety and the security and the freedom of victory. But, you know, in the 1800s, when Napoleon was the emperor of France, he had totalitarian power. And uh, it's, it's been widely known throughout history that anyone who's had totalitarian power, uh, generally uh, uh, a way of controlling people is to make them afraid. And so one of the things that he did was he banned all the cafes. He banned all the restaurants. Why? Because where people gathered to eat, that's where they spoke freely. When they speak freely, they share ideas. And ideas lead to insurrections and revolutions, you see? And so he didn't want his military gathering together. He didn't want people at high places gathering together. He banned it. Once you remove the cafes, once you remove the restaurants, people are alone. Jesus Christ, in the face of his enemies, to show you that you are safe, to show you that you have security, to show you that you have freedom. I'm not talking about just general freedom, general security. This is you in the workplace. We are afraid of even the smallest things. Jesus Christ has given you an image of a table set up, elaborately prepared. I mean, the enemies are pouncing, and, and, and Jesus, he doesn't mind that. Your shepherd is preparing this feast and inviting you to come and dine with him to show you how little that means, how little of a concern because he has already defeated death, you see. And so he says, that which cannot, that cannot ruin you anymore. Nothing you are afraid of today can ruin you. The only thing that can break you, I have broken. And so if you place your trust in me, my power, my leadership, my shepherding uh, hand in your life, you have no reason to fear. You can eat with me. We can dialogue. We can talk. You see that? You can celebrate. Even in the valley, you can celebrate. No matter how bad the darkness is, some of us are just completely consumed by guilt. Some of us, because of our pride, we've done some, some incredibly terrible things. Some of us have experienced incredible wrongs done to us. Some of us, just enormous amounts of pressure in different dimensions of our lives. Plunge your fears and your anxieties and your sufferings into the victory of Christ. 
None of those things, if they go bad, will ever ruin you. God will, that means that God is only working through those things. Why would a shepherd even allow those things to happen? God is working through it to bring about a greater experience and taste of victory because of the victory of Christ. You will experience the peace of God. You will experience the feast of God. That's victory. The second thing is, is honor. Because of victory, there's honor. You anoint my head with oil. You see, verse 5 is that indent. Verse 5 begins with victory, and the remainder of verse 5 then hinges on that victory. The psalmist says, the Lord invites me as a guest to dine at his table before uh, my enemies, and there he anoints my head with oil. So not only does he prepare this elaborate feast, there's safety and there's freedom, and there's, and there's a tremendous uh, a notion of victory. The enemy has been thwarted and subdued. There then he pours this oil over your head. To anoint somebody is to do two things. You are welcoming them. It's an act of hospitality, but it's also an act of honor. You are covering the guest's face. You're covering their head. You're covering then their body with oil. Why? Because oil is expensive. Oil is aromatic. Those oils that they used were expensive and aromatic. They were precious. And so to cover one's head, and the head represents the entire body, the entire person, is saying what? You are precious. You are covered with oil. You are precious. You are covered with, this is how I view you. You are, you are a sweet perfume and a fragrance. You are covered with honor. What does that mean? This is a person in the valley. He's been war-torn, beaten up. No matter where you've been, no matter the darkness, no matter how you feel about yourself, if you are a Christian, the Lord honors you. The table is not just a place of victory. It's a place of honor. To be able to sit with a king is to be able to sit in a place of honor. The enemy has been defeated, and so this table is a place of safety. It's a place of freedom. Pouring the oil, then, is a place of welcome, and it's a place of honor. In other words, this is your feast. The shepherd provides. He leads. He restores. He guides. He protects you. He fights for you. He honors you. He lifts you up. This is a God who hears every cry. You cry, this is a God who hears every cry, every silent cry, every silent suffering. He is there. This is a God who hears every sigh. The psalmist is singing because he knows he has been heard time and time and time again. And he's reflecting on his life. He says, yes, in those moments of pain, God has been present. Nothing can keep you from God's welcome and honor. That's an amazing thing. Nothing can keep you from God's welcome. Nothing can keep you from God's honor except to reject that invitation and to reject that honor. How do we reject the honor and the invitation of God? It's when we seek the honor of something else. It's when we're constantly looking for the approval of something else as more important than God. It's when we're looking for victory on our own and we reject the helplessness, the notion of our own helplessness and the need for God's presence in our lives. There's the source. That's why we are consumed by anxiety. Because of fear, we can't see a foot in front of ourselves. There's, that's the source of all of our hurt and our brokenness because we're taking matters into our own hands because other things have become more important than God, than God and his will, his word. Sin is rejecting God's embrace. Sin is rejecting his honor. Simply put, and to find something else that makes us feel honor and self-worth. 
And in the end, it always leads you. It always comes with a promise, but it leaves you alone. To receive the invitation of the shepherd king, to know that you are the guest of honor at his table, and that he's covered you with oil. What's the mark of a Christian? How do we respond to that? Joy. There's joy. There's a bursting into song. There's a trust because we know in any circumstance, God is present and he is for us, fighting for us. And that does two things. One, it enables healing and two, it empowers healing. You know, first, it enables healing because think about this. Why do we fight all the time? Why are we constantly working and striving, competing with other people, stepping all over other people to get ahead? We're, it's like we're running this race, and we don't even know what it is we're pursuing. And it's because if we win, if we feel like we're winning, then we know we are okay. You see, if you prove yourself, if you win the battle if, on your own, if you just do better on your own, if you gain approval on your own, then you feel you're okay. You feel justified. You see, the problem is we can't justify ourselves. We need justification, and yet you can't do it. You can't earn it on your own. We, everybody, we're built in a way that everybody else needs somebody outside of us declaring and saying, you are worthy, you are good. You know, you may believe against that. You may not, you know, I don't really care what people think. That is a total self-deception because there's not a single person who's working who does not desire the approval of their boss. There's not a single writer who believes that writing is his craft, who doesn't believe that uh, he needs people to validate what he's written. There's no scientist or doctor that does not need to be validated in terms of his practice and his performance. There is not a single mother out there in the world who does not need to hear from somebody, whether it's their children or their spouse or people around them to saying, yes, you are a good mother. There is no father out there who doesn't believe that they need the validation of other, other people around them, you see? There's not a single person in any profession or any function in life that doesn't need the validation. We are designed that way. We are designed to, and we had it. In the garden, we had that, you see? The problem is you can't do it. Once we depart, decided to depart from the ultimate validation, which was our relationship with God, we're now looking to win the battle on our own, do better on our own, declare ourselves worthy and good in some way, shape, or form. That's what it means to be righteous. He guides me in paths of righteousness, even though I walk in the valley. That's what he says, right? We're looking for righteousness, approval, uh, to be justified, to be correct. That's what we want. Now, if you push and you're working, you're going to get that victory on your own. You're going to get that honor on your own. That's going, to be, that's going to be more scars. That's going to lead to more pain. That's going to lead to greater heightened anxiety and certainly more fatigue. You're never going to feel healed. That's the point. You're never going to feel healing. You're never going to experience real healing, even if you get there, because you did it alone and you are alone and you're still at war. But the gospel teaches us that the shepherd fought for us. And when you face the most intense suffering, the most intense criticism, and you are alone, it's like this bully that's just beating you down and chasing you around, but then this champion shows up, and he fights for you. He stands there with you. There's this confidence. There's this champion who's, who prepares this elaborate meal. You just come with all these, what do I do? And he prepares this meal, and he says, I got this. Trust me, you're going to be okay. 
It's like this champion who's going to speak for you, defend you, argue for you, fight for you, honor you. There's comfort there. There's peace there. There's gladness there. There's thanksgiving there. There's gratitude there. There's joy. That's a healing joy. It's going to heal your ego. You realize how foolish you've been chasing these things on your own and how insurmountable that was. It heals your pride. It heals your sinfulness. It heals your fears, your anxieties. It's going to heal your depression all along. This is David looking back on his life now and saying, all along, he was there. You see, there's a gratitude, a gladness, a thanksgiving there. And it's beautiful. It's an amazing thing. It's healing. It heals all those hurts, all the things that you've experienced because a joy has come through all that brokenness to subsume and swallow up the pride and the ego and the sin and the fighting and the hurt and the pain. There's something about a bigger person on the outside standing with you, justifying you. That's what makes a small person feel okay. It's the healing of your self-esteem. When you come before this incredible host, war-torn and beaten up, in guilt, failed and flawed, and yet he pours over, oil over you and he says, you right there are beautiful and precious. He doesn't just leave you go. That will shape you. It's going to shape your view of yourself because you have, a, you have a deeper view of how this host that matters, this host that is honored, feels and believes about you. You see that? And this is not just a king. This is not just a person with a subjective opinion. This is your creator. He has made you. He is, he is authority then over you. He is the author of you. And he's saying you are a masterpiece. Pours over, oil over you and says you are precious. I will never let anything ruin you. No matter what you've been through, you can heal. And when you heal, it empowers healing. Why? Because when you are whole, when you've, when you've been redeemed, when you've been renewed, and when you've experienced kind of a healing in that process, you can forgive people. That's restorative. You can have, you gain a certain compassion that you didn't have before. You see that? Towards people who've hurt you even. You can be healed of your self-absorption and your self-centeredness so you start to look outside of yourself. Jesus Christ, he's glorified. At the resurrection, he was a completely glorified body. He appears in front of his disciples. They betrayed him. They abandoned him. They hurt him. What does he say to them? Now it's time for you to pay. No, that's not what he says. He says, peace be with you. What a relief. What comfort. What confidence. You see that? The mark of someone who's truly been planting the honor of God and the victory of Christ in their lives, there's healing. And that healing goes outward in love. It's demonstrated in love. Lastly, there's intimacy. In the victory of Christ, who is a shepherd, there's this richness, there's this abundance, there's this honor, there's this healing. But most of all, we see intimacy. My cup overflows. In ancient times, preparing a table for a meal, it was expensive. You didn't have Costco to bring down prices. You didn't have Wegmans to bring down prices. If you wanted to prepare a feast in an agrarian culture, like the one that uh, uh, the author here lived, every part
part of the meal, if you think about it, every part of the meal was something you grew or you raised. You had to put tremendous amount of care and time into building and raising uh, this meal. So to prepare a feast and to take all that and to expire that in one meal, it took a lot of work and it was costly because every lamb slaughtered was your lamb. Every cow that you slaughtered was your cow. Every chicken that you killed was your chicken. Only, you only prepare a meal like this, a meal like this then for somebody that you really loved, for somebody that you really honored, somebody that you really valued, somebody that was close to you. Intimacy. David didn't say, I prepped the table. I worked and spent to bring you, the king, you, the shepherd, to the table to be intimate with me. You see, that's religion. Religion is, you got to do the work. You have to earn the intimacy. You got to prepare everything. It's got to be elaborate. It's got to be perfect so that the king will come and honor you. Then there'd be no song. You see, why would David sing in a situation like that? No. Instead, David, if anything, you'd feel entitled. I've done it. Now give it to me. And we have a lot of entitled people in the church. David doesn't say, I did the work to earn intimacy. He sings and he says, you prepared the table. I didn't deserve this. You prepared the table. You desire intimacy with me. When you're pursuing that one person that you deeply love and admire, I want you to remember that more important than that is that Jesus Christ himself, your shepherd, pursues you intimately. To reject that, that's at the heart of sin. You see that? And then there's the cup. In the ancient times, you know how important a guest is to you because there was a culture of hospitality overall in that, in that generation, in that culture. And you demonstrated that by always offering and preparing a table and drinking with that person. So when you dine together and it's getting late and the night starts to wind down, you've had enough, you start to drink less, you start to eat less, you start to wind down, you start to get prepared to go home. And so uh, your host will pour a little bit of wine. And what that means is, hey, we're winding down. It's time to go home. Let's get ready. But if you're a good friend and you wanted to stay longer, you poured a little bit more wine. If the conversation was enriching and delightful, you poured a little bit more wine. And if this is a close friend and you want him to stay even a little bit longer, you pour that wine up to the middle. And if you really, really want that person to stay, you pour that wine right back up to the top. You're saying, let's keep going. Whatever happens... You as a guest, you don't want to overstay your welcome in that culture. But this psalmist says what? The Lord, the host, and it's getting late. And he's thinking, you know, you're thinking, I probably should go home. I don't want to overstay my welcome. The Lord takes the wine. And he's probably going to pour a little bit to let you know it's time. But what happens? He doesn't, he doesn't stop at the little bit. He doesn't stop at a little bit more. He doesn't stop at the middle. He doesn't stop at the brim. He says, my cup overflows. What does that mean? He never wants you to leave. He wants you to stay for good. Our God pursues us intimately and wants us to stay for all time. He delights in relationship with his people. This is not a God that says, come back someday. This is not a God that says, I'll do it later. That's us. We reject the invitation all the time when we're called to pray when we think about church, when we think about plugging in, when we think about our deeper involvement, deeper surrender, what intimacy is that here? 
This is a God that says every day. This is a God that says every moment, moment by moment, I've loved, I've, I've uh, loved, uh, moment by moment, I've loved from above. Is that how it goes? Is that, how, is that, how, that doesn't sound right. Is that how it goes? Oh, moment by moment, I'm lost in his love. That's, that's an amazing line. God desires great intimacy with us. Victory gives us that intimacy with Jesus because he has reconciled us to God through his gospel. On the cross, what do you see? You see Jesus Christ suffering. You see him bleeding. You see him dying. There is the darkness, the ultimate darkness. There's the danger, it's the ultimate danger. There's a death, it's the ultimate death. On the cross, you see a greater brokenness than even that, than what's physical. A greater valley in darkness, a greater danger, because when Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God was pouring out on him as a penalty for our sins. It's what drove us apart, and yet he did that, poured out his blood, and so He became separated from God. What created the chasm between us and God, now he bridged through his death and his blood so that we can be brought to that table. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate darkness, the ultimate danger, the ultimate death, and he did it alone. He did it alone. My God, my God, you've forsaken me. He did it alone. And so what do you see? Do you see victory? Yes, it looks like defeat though. Do you see safety? Yes, for us. But it looks like danger, though. Do you see blessing? Yes, but it looks like suffering, though. And yet God sent his son to suffer the ultimate defeat, the ultimate danger, the ultimate suffering, the brokenness, to bring about the greatest renewal, the greatest security, the greatest safety and restoration, victory in him in a way that we could never, ever achieve on our own, with our own strength. We are united to Christ's death through his death and resurrection. That means we have power. That means Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate separation, the ultimate reconciliation, the ultimate, uh, uh, sorry, for us to have reconciliation, the ultimate death so that we can have life. And he said, I will not let danger, I will go through any danger for you. There's no danger that I would not go through for you. I will not let your fears overtake you. I will not let any circumstance in your life destroy you. I have destroyed the one thing that can ruin you. I died. So you can have victory in me. I've reconciled you to the Father so that you can come to the table. On the cross, Jesus Christ was betrayed. He was suffered. He was, he bled. He was torn apart, ripped apart. People were mocking him and he died alone so that you will never, ever be alone. You are in fact honored by the King. You are in fact justified by the king. You are healed by Jesus. The hands of the king are healing hands. Jesus Christ was completely separated from God and he became sin so that you can enjoy the deep intimacy with God. That means you can go to him with anything. There's nothing, not even your own sin as a Christian. Your own sin cannot separate you from God. And when you see Jesus Christ delighting in you, honoring you, treasuring you, you will delight in him. You will honor him. You will treasure him. You see, 
If you see the gospel as just rules and laws, you will never experience the victory of Jesus because you're still trying to achieve victory on your own and you're gonna fail and you're gonna feel set back and you're always still working to prove yourself. You're working and working and working and you're gonna live in defeat. You're never gonna heal. That is not in the soul. And you're always gonna feel alone no matter who you have around you and you're never gonna know where you stand with God but to the degree that you trust that Jesus Christ suffered, bled, and died for you, What's been poured over you is the oil. That's the oil. The blood of Christ covering over your sin. There's victory. There's honor. There's healing. There's intimacy. That's what the soul needs. Plunge your failures. Plunge your weakness. Plunge your striving. Relinquish the ways that you've worked to do this on your own. Your lostness into the healing balm of Jesus' wounded hands. And you will experience a life-changing power. The life-changing power of God's shepherding love, and it's gonna be like a feast, a meal, and you will be satisfied to your soul. Let that fill you up. Let's pray together.